What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! Hello everyone, welcome back to On The Ledger. This is your host, Mul Saeed. Hope you're all doing well as we're back once again on your weekly rendezvous from Paris. Today we'll be talking about an exciting integration, uh, one that I've personally been looking forward to for a while. As you probably know, Ledger Live, the companion app of your Ledger device, has evolved a lot in the past couple of years. It's gone from being a simple interface to manage your digital assets to a hub where you can access a wide variety of crypto services and apps. Uh, but one thing was missing. Uh, when sending digital assets in Ethereum, there was no way to use Ethereum naming services, mostly known by ENS. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, ENS is a decentralized naming service that replaces long, complicated blockchain addresses with easy-to-remember names, making transactions faster, simpler, and most importantly, more user-friendly. In addition to that, ENS is also a DAO, and it has its own token, which was airdropped to early adopters and is also available on Ledger Live. So, in a world where your wallet becomes an essential pillar of your on-chain identity, ENS is more than just an address, it's a social identifier. And the market has caught up with the idea, with some ENS names selling for astonishing valuations in recent years. So what's that all about? How will ENS evolve in the future? And what can you do with it on Ledger Live? Join us as we explore these questions and more. We're glad to have Alicia.eth on the show. Alicia is the governance lead at ENS. We'll be joined by podcast regular Fabrice Dotria, Ledger's head of platform. Alicia, Fabrice, pleasure to have you on the show. How are you feeling today? Thanks so much. Feeling really great and excited to be here. Yeah, likewise, Mo. Super happy to be here. Um, I'm sure we'll have a great chat today. Absolutely. So let's start by setting the table, Alicia. Tell us the story of ENS. When was it born and how does it work? Yes, yeah, so we are coming up to the sixth birthday of ENS the protocol. And so it was founded by Nick Johnson, who is Nick.e. And he was at the Ethereum Foundation working on the Swarm project, which is similar to like IPFS, and essentially started ENS as a side project. Uh, and it got to the point where he received a grant from the Ethereum Foundation to spin this side project into like a full-time gig. And that funding allowed him to onboard some more team members and commit to uh, working on it full-time. And, you know, luckily we, and when I say we, so True Names Limited was the company that Nick started, and now it's called ENS Labs. And we have been funded by grants uh, for the last couple of years, up until last year when the DAO started to fund ENS Labs. And so... Yeah, it started as a side project, uh, spun out of the EF, and now, you know, in the last, I would say, two years in particular, mm -hmm. the rate of adoption for ENS has really been incredible. I think, you know, thinking about this idea of, um, I don't know if it was like NFT summer or JP <laughs> summer last year, uh, I think that ENS was really at the heart of that. And uh, I think this speaks to the fact that naming is central to a lot of what we do and how we interact in the spaces that we're in. So it's interesting because most people might not know that, but ENS is an NFT. So you're basically buying an NFT that enables you 
to basically name your address in a certain way, in whichever way you see fit. And then whoever wants to be sending you assets would then use that name that you've chosen in order to either send you ETH, any token, or, you know, basically an NFT. Um, so, you know, there's like a kind of a transition between like the .com and, and kind of .eth. And I know that, that that's a narrative that um, has been uh, pretty predominant in the past couple of, of years, especially with like the, you know, NFT, NFT summer, or NFT year that we've had in, in between 2021 and 2022. Um, how, 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 how are you actually like perceiving that, that shift? And, um, you know, for, for someone who's just like kind of discovering the space, what can you tell them about the different things that they can do with their ENS? Yeah. So I think the first thing to talk about is this idea that normally when you have a new technology, the kind of things that really excite people are this idea of replacing the old technology completely. Mm -hmm. ENS doesn't do that. And that's actually a distinction from other naming services in the blockchain space. So ENS is compatible with DNS names. So if I have Alicia.xyz, it is also can be imported into ENS and become an ENS name. And so ENS is forward compatible with DNS. And I think that makes sense from the perspective of ENS being a critical piece of infrastructure, not only for Ethereum, but the entire internet. It doesn't make sense when every single website that you go on, right, well, the majority of the websites that you visit are DNS domains. And so um, that as a starting point was a really important aspect of ENS. And um, yeah, so now there is this idea that an ENS domain is a domain just like you have in Web2. You can host a decentralized website with it. Uh, like you said, it's really great to make Ethereum addresses human readable. So I don't know about you, but I, of the 42 characters in my Ethereum address, I remember 0x75. I, I couldn't for the life of me remember even like the, the, the next character, um, but I can remember Alicia.eth. And so this idea of having a human readable name for your crypto wallet, for your Ethereum address is really great. And then also we've started to see this idea of a Web3 username really develop over the last year or so. And I think, you know, with evolutions, even in Web2, of like logging with Facebook and being able to sign in with Google and things like that, uh, you, you definitely feel the benefits of not having to create a username and password every single time you go to a, like a website and create an account. And I guess the difference between ENS and these kind of trusted third-party services that exist in Web2 from these big platforms is that your ENS name is user-owned. So there is really no one else. Like, I am the owner of Alicia.eth. When I log into anything, if I want to leave that service, I will leave that debt. I just literally disconnect my wallet. I don't even have to go back there. I don't have to ask for anyone's permission to take my name somewhere else. I think this idea of like a self-sovereign identity, mm -hmm. um, we're just kind of starting to hit like a tipping point with sign-in with Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we literally just had a Shopify integration a couple of weeks ago uh, with sign-in with Ethereum. So you can kind of start to see that it makes a lot of sense as we're talking about not only Ethereum, but the internet um, to have a username that works across all platforms. Absolutely, and we'll get into um, you know self sovereign identities in a mm -hmm. in a few minutes. But before that, um, how do you get an ENS, and how much does it cost? Yeah, so there are basically two ways that you can uh, get an ENS name, and so you can go and register it uh, essentially using an interface. 
um, which is like a, a website that interacts with the smart contracts. And so ens.domains is a website that is created by ENS Labs, who are the main kind of developers of the protocol. And so you can just go to like app.ens.domains, register a name. Basically, you search it, and if it's available, you'll be able to register it. If it's not, it'll say that it's already been registered. It'll show you details like when it's expiring. I know a lot of people have like a really long list of names that they're interested in. And um, you can also register uh, from secondary, or the secondary market. So people who have already registered names are able to sell their names. Because like you said earlier, an ENS name is an NFT. And so it can be traded and sold just like any other NFT. Uh, so, you know, you can go to platforms like OpenSea, uh, ENS Vision, LooksRare, and you can kind of buy a name in that way. And then, did you ask how much it costs as well? Yes. Yeah. So, basically, it, it, the cost of an ENS name, well, actually, so ENS names can be either DNS names or .eth names. Mm -hmm. So, for .eth names, uh, there is basically three tiers of pricing. So, a five-character name is $5 US per year. And a four-character name is 160 US per year. And a three-character name is 640 per year. And the logic behind the pricing is just that three and four-character names have more scarcity um, because there's definitely like a finite number of them and they're kind of deemed more desirable. And so the idea is that we want people to not register these names just because they were early and, you know, they were here so they can but we want people ultimately to register names because they want to use them. And this pricing model is meant to effectively disincentivize kind of squatting on a name and incentivize use. Pretty interesting. Fabrice, ENS will finally be available on Ledger Live. This was a long time coming. Uh, what does that mean for Ledger users? So first, you know, we, we could have done it way faster, but it was very important for us to have uh, an end-to-end -end experience where you have ENS, of course, on the Ledger Live UI, but also on the Ledger device screen itself. doesn't make sense to type alicia.eth on your UI and verify 0x, ABC, whatever, uh, then on your device. It's even more confusing this way. So that's why it took so long. Um, and we can deep dive into the details later if you're interested, though. Um, now, what does it mean? Well, you have two cases. The first case is... Um, I want to use a, still an exactly similar address like I used to. I copy-paste the address from another source. In that case, what Ledger Live will do, it will check if for this given exactly similar address, there is an associated ENS uh, to it. And if that's the case, we will inform the user that, yes, there is one. So that's already kind of useful uh, because in the event I use Alicia address, address uh, it will tell me, Ledger Live will tell me, by the way, this is Alicia.eth. So it's, it's already kind of cool because now you know that you're probably sending to the right recipient. Uh, but the real added value is what happens if I directly decide to type alicia.eth because I don't want to bother with exactly similar address anymore. When in that case, Ledger Live will check that the alicia.eth ENS is actually a valid one. And if so, we'll tell you, by the way, the exactly similar address is, just in case you want to double check it. Um, but you don't need to um, because after that, you will continue your flow. Uh, you will see your transaction summary. will tell you, be careful, you decided to select alicia.eth. This is what you will actually verify on your device. And so unless you really want to double check and also display the exact similar address associated to it, 
we will basically hide uh, the hexadecimal address from your mm -hmm. device display. And therefore, you will not bother anymore with hexadecimal character. You will just see I'm sending 0.1 ETH to uh, alicia.eth uh, for this amount of fees. Mm -hmm. And that's actually really, you know, way more user-friendly than the actual transaction flow that we mm -hmm. have today. And you, you mentioned the key point about that verification process and, and the trusted display. And for those of you who are listening to us and don't know, the actual uh, trusted display of the ledger device is connected to the secure element, which is the chip that uh, secures your private keys. So whatever you see on that trusted display is basically unhackable to a certain extent. So you being able to verify the ENS on the display gives you a guarantee that you're actually sending an address to that um, um, ENS name. Um, one thing that, you know, since uh, people can't really hack into your device, they try to get you to commit a mistake. Um, and one main mistake that, that people were committing, uh, mainly due to the, you know, uh, the UX not being at the level uh, at which it should be, is falling for address poisoning scams. So, Fabrice, could you maybe explain what address poisoning is and, and how that um, ENS integration could help? Uh, mitigate the risks uh, associated with um, address poisoning? Address poisoning in general is, is kind of a complex topic, so I'll try to be very short. But in a nutshell, what it means is somehow someone will make some either real or fake transaction appear in your transaction history. Um, and they very much look like a valid transaction in the sense that the funds are either sent to or from an address that looks like completely legit. And most of the time, and that's what people are doing, they're selecting an address that is either exactly yours or even one that looks very much like yours. And there is just one character or two that are different. It's actually not so hard for a hacker to, in a couple of seconds, to generate an address where the first few and, and, and last characters are actually the same but the, 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 the characters in between are completely different. It's not super difficult to do. But so the, the hacker would have control of this address. And because you're lazy, you know, you just go to your transaction history and you say, yeah, you know what? I don't know where my address is. I, I don't want to bother verifying it on my device and everything. So I just copy paste it from my transaction history. And that's when the mistake happens, mm -hmm. okay? Because you're copy pasting uh, an address that is actually not yours, that mm -hmm. someone somehow made appear in your transaction history by poisoning your address. That's where the, 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 the word comes from. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I would say it's harder to do if your address is, is linked to an ENS somehow. Because at this moment, uh, in your transaction history, you would see uh, Fabrice.eth if you're receiving from, from, I don't know, I'm sending from, from Binance to MyNano, uh, and MyNano is, is linked to, uh, to, to Fabrice.eth. I know I'm sending to Fabrice.eth. Mm -hmm. It's still possible to create a fake ENS like uh, Fabrice.eth. Mm -hmm. But in that case, to me, at least, it's easier to spot the mistake uh, by you know just seeing that it's a different letter than spotting the few different characters in 42 uh, characters long uh, string. So it could help. But let's be very honest, there is no perfect solution. And at the end of the day, you're still in complete control. Mm -hmm. So whatever you do when you're sending funds to someone, just double check it on your device. Whether it's an hexadecimal address, be very careful that you actually verify the address 
with the trusted source that give it to you. So if my friend is sending me an address on WhatsApp, that's where I check, you know, the address he, he, he sent me. Mm -hmm. And I confirm it on my ledger secure display. And uh, character by character. It's, it's painful, but that's the only way to be secure. Having ENS makes it easier to verify. But still, doesn't mean that you should skip this part. You should mm -hmm. still verify it very carefully. Because, yeah, if one character is different, well, the recipient is not the right one. And so, the, honestly, the, the mistake can be sometimes even easier to make because you read fast and you think it's okay. Just be careful. It's not because it's an ENS mm -hmm. that you should uh, go too fast. Don't trust verify. That's always. what we always say. So, Alicia, uh, we've spoken about this a little bit. In a world where your wallet is actually an essential part of um, your on-chain identity or your identity in a more general sense, um, what do you think is the role of ENS in that and how do you see it evolving? Um, we've spoken about the fact that, you know, a lot of people were actually um, buying ENS names that had some sort of a social identification. So we had the three digits like with the with the like the one, two, three or, you know, three, two, one and all of that. And it actually like kind of created a um, you know, social signal, but also a community of people that had those three digit ENSs that, you know, um, you know, created some discords and started like doing things together. It became like some some sort of a tool for um, mass collaboration between individuals that had that common uh, identity. So, what's your point of view about you know all of that and how that you know e the ENS names being like a part of the evolution towards uh, digital and on-chain identities? Yeah, the way that I think about ENS evolving is. I would say the analogy is that it's like a passport, like we mm -hmm. have in the physical world. So you, you can think of ENS as your passport on the internet. And on top of this kind of very functional layer of just like this ENS name relates to this Ethereum address, I think what you were talking about with, you know, what became the 10K club within ENS uh, is this sense of this layer of kind of belonging that is kind of put on top of the functional aspects of ENS names, which is a really exciting thing because I don't know that there has ever been, you know, a piece of infrastructure that is so kind of open and extensible. It's open source, it's a public good, kind of anyone can do what they want with ENS, um, you know, to develop it or extend it in a way that works for them. And I think the really exciting thing is thinking about um, so at the moment we think about, you know, your identity, it's like the singular thing, right? I am Alicia.eth. Mm -hmm. At the moment, and, you know, when I go around the Web3 web, um, this is my single identity. I, I, I might this everywhere, but it's not the only part of me. I am like a DAO participant. I am a project contributor to other projects. I might be a podcast listener to a specific podcast. I might, you know, there are all these different elements. And I think it's kind of interesting thinking about the potential for, um, I guess, like your primary ENS to be your passport, mm -hmm. but then these like different ENS subdomains related to different aspects where you belong in different communities to almost become like stamps, right, in your passport or almost like visas where you're mm -hmm. like, wait, I'm going into this Friends with Benefits app. I might have a subdomain, you know, it's something that they could do um, because it's a gated community. They could issue subdomains to members and yeah you, you have it and and that's how it's used I think also from not only a community standpoint but like a company and organization standpoint because of 
you know, the technology that we've rolled out in the last, I would say, 12 months with kind of off-chain ENS resolution, Mm -hmm. companies like Coinbase were able to issue, I think there are about 2 million names in the last kind of eight months, 2 million ENS names, which are basically cb.id. So I have futureleisure.cb.id. And I think this is also a big part of the future of ENS, which is that you, you won't even know that that's an ENS name, right? Because at the moment, you see a .eth and you associate, associate it with ENS. But mm-hmm. the future of ENS um, is really meshed a lot with DNS and the existing domain name system. And I think that that's also just like a really exciting part of what this looks like. And mm-hmm. I think it's, to me, it's how I know that ENS is different to any other domain name kind of blockchain product. We're not trying to sell a product here. We're trying to build infrastructure. And there's, there's just a fundamental difference between trying to enable, you know, naming infrastructure for the, for the web mm-hmm. than just like selling domain names. Interesting. Um, so many different questions are kind of <laughs> coming, coming to mind here. But I think like the, the, um, that whole transition from state-owned identity, like your, bas- your passport, your driving license, which is basically like issued by... Um, the country in which you live in or um, the country that you're from to platform-owned identities, Facebook, Instagram, um, you know, Twitter. It's basically owned by a platform and you're building your identity and your account as you go. And now we have like self-sovereign identities, um, which is basically, you know, your wallet and everything that you have in it and and how you're able to actually, um, you know, identify a wallet. Um, I think the, the question that I have is that when you think about like the state-owned identities and um, the the platform-owned ones, they're kind of non-transferable. Whereas the the self-sovereign identities for now, they're all based on certain assets that you could basically transfer from one wallet to another. Um, you know, ENS is an NFT; it's not a soul-bound token. Um, so, how do you do? You basically see the evolution towards self-sovereign identity to guarantee, um, you know, kind of the uh, the veracity and, and, and the ownership of, of, of these assets to form um, a kind of verifiable identity. Yeah, I think there are some really interesting projects in the space that are starting to kind of tackle this, I, I'm not going to say problem, but I think it's more of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so one example is like Gitcoin Passport, where you can kind of uh, verify different elements, both from Web 2 and Web 3, to kind of build up a score which will then let you do specific actions. And um, so, so that's one example. I think the other example that people are, are really excited about is kind of the zero knowledge piece. Mm-hmm. So there are projects like Sysmo, which will allow you to verify, um, say, an off-chain credential. And uh, then you can, say, go into um, an environment on the internet. And I can know that I have verified my passport Um, and that I am a human person, and this is my um, citizenship, say, and I don't need to disclose that information to the person on the other side, um, say, who is verifying my identity. They Mm -hmm. just see that I have, you know, the Sysmo badge, and they can trust that um, that was verified as part of that process. So I think, you know, this also ties into the fact that an ENS name can store any kind of text record that you like. And so... Basically, any key value pair can be entered. At the moment, you when you register an ENS name, you see all the standard kind of profile data. You know, maybe like your Twitter, a website, your location, all that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. 
That is really just the beginning. I think we haven't even scratched the surface of the potential of what it means to be able to enter anything into an ENS name. And actually one project that, you know, I think has kind of utilized this really well is Snapshot, which is mm-hmm. a, a voting platform, like a governance voting platform. And to create a snapshot space, you're required to um, set an ENS text record um, as your snapshot ID. And then based on that, uh, snapshot will create a snapshot space for you. And so, you know, there are kind of more and more, I think, opportunities for projects and communities, companies um, to create meaningful, you know, whatever is a meaningful record for them and then for that to be used within that ecosystem. And it sounds crazy to think about now, but, you know, most people might have like one to five records associated with their ENS name. Mm-hmm. There's no reason in the future that that number can't be astronomical. I might have 500 different records associated with my ENS name based on, you know, every time I go to an in-real-life event or every time I join this group chat. Um mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, we're just kind of starting to explore what that means. But the potential is just, yeah, really exciting. No doubt about that. And Fabai, speaking of identity, you know, how do you see Ledger's role um, in the evolution towards um, self-sovereign identities? You know, Ledger started as a device to secure, um, you know, digital assets on the blockchain, namely financial assets, and how the space has evolved in the in the last few years um, makes it so like these these digital assets are so much more than, than just financial assets. Now we're talking about culture, we're talking about identity, we're talking about, um, you know, data ownership, a variety of different things. So you you touched on stacks, but like what is the next step of, of, of the Ledger product evolution and, and how does it like kind of pave the way towards uh, self-sovereign identities? So first, um, like, Alicia was saying there is, we're just scratching the surface, like mm-hmm. you said, and, and it's probably true. Uh, there is a ton of more things that might happen with ENS and in general around self-sovereignty. Um, indeed, uh, if, you, if you remember a few years ago, we were securing crypto coins, then tokens, then NFTs. Now we are getting to the last frontier, which is, yeah, your identity is probably the the most important digital asset that you can have. Um, so I, I don't think it changes at all the mission from Ledger. It's, it just make it even more important. Now you have to secure something that is, yeah, va- you know, value and, and money is cool. It's important to secure, obviously, um, but it's even more important to secure your digital self uh, in, in, in any shape or form you, you think about it. So... Fabrice.eth or the Fabrice on Web3 uh, that I will have or own uh, is super important to me. I don't want to lose it. And and unfortunately or fortunately, there is no way at the moment on the blockchain to recover something that is stolen from me. So it's even more important that I can actually secure this part of my digital self. Now, what is the next step? Um, so to me, Ledger Stacks is really just you know one step further uh, towards making things easier to use. Um, I don't know exactly what the next steps are, but I think we can all imagine uh, or guess how you could bring the digital 
self-ownership uh, in everyday life uh, by making it easier, the first thing you can think of, obviously, is using your mobile phone, okay? You use your mobile phone and you do stuff with it all day long. Uh, you absolutely have no control of, of your data. Uh, you're using Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, or whatever, uh, and you don't control anything that's going on uh, in, in this space. Web3 is here to change this by giving you back control. Um, the only problem is right now there is absolutely no way for your phone to be Web3 compatible in terms of security. It's not a device that is uh, designed to be secure enough for Web3. Uh, so I would say the next frontier, the next big challenge is to actually make this happen. How? Uh, well, I'll let the, the listener and viewers uh, imagine and uh, maybe give us feedback. We have, of course, a few ideas. Uh, I'm not sure I can express all of them here, uh, Mo, but uh, we, we are definitely working on, on, on some ideas. Uh, and I think that the next frontier is not right now. Um, it's not next year. It will take a bit more time, uh, but we are definitely actively mm -hmm. working on it. Yeah, and even if you think about the evolution towards stacks, like just having a bigger screen opens up the so many different possibilities, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're all looking forward to seeing like how hardware can facilitate the adoption of web three. Um, and obviously like having secure hardware either combined with web two hardware that is easy to use, um, or, you know, secure hardware that basically becomes the entry point to the ecosystem is definitely something that, um, will, will basically help out a lot of people in, in terms of like having a more seamless user experience. Um, so Alicia, back to ENS, uh, we've spoken about the governance token, um, that, you know, kind of means that holders, um, can participate in the decision-making and it was a huge event. Um, I think it was towards the end of 2021 or maybe beginning of 2022, if I'm not mistaken, where, uh, the, uh, kind of, uh, OG holders got airdropped some ENS tokens and I was, uh, amongst the lucky people that got the tokens. So, what, what can you tell us about all of that and, and how are you kind of um, working collaboratively with the community as a governance lead at ENS? Yeah, so I will never forget that day. It was November 8th, 2021, yeah. <laughs> which is the day that um, we launched the ENS token. And so I guess it actually loops right back to the start of the story. So when Nick created ENS, it originally had uh, a seven keyholder multisig made up of uh, people from, uh, I guess, like notable and respected people within the Ethereum ecosystem. So Nick was actually just one of those keyholders. And so even from, you know, its very inception, the governance of ENS has always been decentralized to some extent because even having, you know, this uh, group of seven people is more is decentralized compared to just, say, ENS Labs making decisions as the development company maintaining and developing the protocol. So the way that we looked at it is that it was always, ENS was always on a path to become decentralized. And in 2021, we kind of realized that the DAO space had matured enough that it felt, I guess, like safe. And I use the term safe, you know, following the DAO hack and all that sort of stuff that happened. Um, so it felt like the DAO space had matured enough to, to launch a token and for this to make sense for the ENS community. And so essentially token holders are able to delegate their ENS tokens to either themselves or any Ethereum address. And once you have delegated voting power, you're able to participate in 
uh, voting on proposals which are put to the DAO. And basically there's two kind of functions of the DAO. The first is protocol governance, and that is to kind of pass protocol upgrades and things like that. There are certain elements of ENS that just like can't be automated. Everything that can just be, you know, written into a smart contract and left and locked has been done. But there are elements such as like the pricing mechanism. You know, at the moment it's $5 a year for a five character name. A proposal could be put to the DAO to change that amount to $3 a year or $10 a year. Um, and we kind of don't know what the future of ENS will hold and, and things like that. So it seemed, you know, like a good idea to make that decision one that the DAO could control. And and then there are just like, you know, contract upgrades. We recently just passed a proposal to upgrade a bunch of contracts um, in, you know, the ENS cluster of contracts. And then the other aspect of DAO governance is basically allocating the treasury um, and managing the treasury. And so with ENS, there are registration fees. It's, it's honestly just like a very lucky byproduct of the fact that this registration mechanism happens to generate ETH uh, for the ENS DAO. And again, all of that money, all of those funds go into um, the DAO treasury. They have never, say, gone to the ENS Labs team or anything like that. And then it's up to, again, the the delegates to vote on how that should be distributed. So, you know, last year, ENS Labs was uh, approved in a proposal to receive a daily stream of funding. And there are also working groups. So we have three working groups, Meta Governance, ENS Ecosystem and Public Goods that also receive funding, say, twice a year. And then, you know, we elect stewards. Again, a decision by token, token holders who have delegated. And, um, yeah, and actually it even goes down right down from, like, the really important uh, kind of, I would say, 100-year vision type of stuff in terms of making decisions, right down to, you know, decisions that happen monthly. So we have, mm -hmm. like, an ENS Small Grants project uh, program, and, yeah, delegates can vote every month on ecosystem and public goods projects. So I guess just, like, trying to really maximise the governance element and, the, like, the governance power of those tokens mm -hmm. and, um, and use it as a pathway and a mechanism for the community to govern the protocol. I guess like one thing to think about is when we did launch the DAO, so 25% of the airdrop went to the community of users. And so that's like you, Mo, um, and, and myself. Um, I was really excited. I think ENS was my first airdrop um, kind of from participating in the space. And and then, yeah, there, there are still 50% of the token in the treasury. And um, there was like an allocation to contributors and developers and things like that. But I'm personally really, I guess, excited because the distribution in the ENS DAO is very, <laughs> I mean, I would say fair. There's no kind of single delegate who holds, you know, a lot of power or a majority of power. There are uh, individuals, there are DAOs, there are companies all participating in governance and... I don't know. I just I think it's a really exciting expression of what a DAO is. That's fascinating. I think like all of these um, decentralized models of governance are really paving the way for a different kind of internet. Um, I want to double click on something you said. You said a hundred years vision. What's the hundred years vision? Like? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really hard for me to shake the scarcity mindset. Uh, you know, given that ENS is a public good and 
literally until we were funded by the Dow, there's always this feeling when you're kind of working on a public good that, you know, is generally unable to capture value. Uh, and so, you know, you live kind of grant to grant. And I know, say, in the 2018 bear market, it was, you know, a really tough time for the team to kind of get through that. And now we're on the other side of it. But ultimately, the the mission for ENS is that in order to be, um, you know, a critical piece of infrastructure for the internet, A, we need to exist. And so the 100-year vision is like in the first instance to exist. And I kind of think about it in this kind of model of surviving and then thriving. And so, you know, to it, make sure that ENS does kind of continue to exist into, you know, the next couple of decades and hopefully like, you know, the century. Uh, the DAO in January, say, just created this endowment um, where the idea is that no matter what happens with crypto markets, I mean, you know what it can be like. Um, it really is from extreme to extreme. No matter what happens with ETH registration fees, uh, ENS will be able to basically, you know, throw off enough cash from its endowment to always be able to cover just like core developers. And um, basically just having initiatives like this and always being mindful of like, this is where we are today. But when it comes to... I guess ENS is ultimately, you know how they say, you know, when you're planting a tree, it's so that others can enjoy the shade. I feel like ultimately there's this idea of stewardship. You know, we're not building a company, we're building something for everyone and it's not ours. It's, again, we're just the stewards. So, yeah, that's what I, I think of um, when I think of this 100-year vision. It's just that um, it's still something with decentralised governance that's open source, that is all of these critical aspects that make it tougher to kind of reach that um, inflection point where you have like adoption, but also, you know, it, that's what's so great about it, I think. Mm -hmm. That's super inspiring. And, you know, before we wrap up, Fabrice, I want you to tell us what's next uh, for Ledger Live. And especially with, with ENS, you know, that's something I've been thinking about like the evolution of Ledger Live was so fascinating to see in the past couple of years, like seeing, um, you know, um, a, a platform going from being only about managing like crypto assets. And then you had these services like buy, sell and stake. Now we have a ton of different D apps. Um, is there a world in which we can see ENS as one of the, as one of the dApps and where people can register directly from Ledger Live? I certainly hope so. Um, so you know, we, we, we had this, uh, this need this change of mindset like you said we, we were doing everything internally now we are more and more relying on others to help us uh design the the, the future ledger product uh and and to do so well we invite everyone including the ens team you know to to join and create their or add their dap uh, into for instance the discover section um so that's one option definitely um I think, by the way, that we are already discussing this thing um, between Nico and my team and probably some, some members of, uh, of Alicia's team. So it's probably something that will happen at some point. Um, for the rest, well, it's the same strategy. Um, we want to invite more teams to join. So right now we are very much focused on 
everything uh, Ethereum virtual machine related. So every EVM network uh, can become really easily integrated in Ledger Live. So we released the first batch uh, a few weeks ago, I guess. And, uh, you know, the Arbitrum and Optimism fans out there will probably be happy to, to know that it's coming out very soon. So, uh, and others, okay, it's not going to stop there. Uh, we're, we have the scalable framework now to, to add more and more uh, EVM networks uh, on Ledger Live. Um, other type of framework as well are, are being designed. I will not uh, say too much about this. And then we have the usual suspects. You know, uh, people are still asking for staking on Cardano and, and other stuff like this. So we are mm -hmm. already working with some members of the Cardano team to make it this happen. All of this to say, still the same strategy, very different from what we did in the past, but now we are really working with everyone in the Web3 community in general. Uh, we, we'd love to remain super agnostic here, so everyone is welcome. Um, and the only rule is, well, we have to build it together at some point. And, and usually what it means is the builders have a lot of work to do, uh, and we are here to help and support and assist. Uh, but essentially now it, it comes from others. So it's pretty cool for us, to be honest, because now we're more and more discussing with people outside of Ledger and uh, trying to, to create this, um, this relation with, uh, with great teams out there. And, you know, the market is recovering, I think. Uh, so it's, uh, everything will, uh, will be great in the, in the near future. So expect more from Ledger Live fairly soon. And I hope, uh, well, the feedbacks will be, uh, will be interesting to read. Very much looking forward to that. Alicia, you've spoken about the 100 years vision, but what's, the, what's next for ENS in the short term? So in the short term, we just released uh, the name wrapper, which allows people to wrap their subdomains and or to wrap their names and issue subdomains uh, that are also NFTs. And so at the moment, if um, or actually not at the moment, but say last month, I have a subdomain, which is say ns.alicia.e, um, but that isn't its own NFT that can be traded and sold just like the parent. Um, .eth name. So now all of that is possible. Again, in terms of like that community perspective um, or organization perspective, whether it's like an NFT collection or an artist or a musician, I think this unlock with subdomains is really exciting um, because, yeah, there's just so much potential in terms of, I guess, like naming. There's like this element of naming that is kind of vanity, but then there's this element of naming which can be really functional. And I think, you know, that we're going to get to this point where we're naming ENS subdomains, just like we name documents on our computer and as many as that as well. So I don't know, you don't want to go into my downloads folder, but you know, I imagine that my ENS manager app, when I go into my profile, will look similar to that as well. So it's really exciting, subdomains. We're working on gasless DNS integration so that, yeah, people can bring over their DNS names, which traditionally you would just think of as a domain. And again, it's a pretty high threshold, you know, even as kind of far along in the web as we are, there's still a high threshold for being able to have your own website on a domain. Um, obviously, it's easier with all the kind of third-party sites that are available. Um, but, yeah, this shift into people thinking about their DNS names as, you know, Web3 usernames and things and identity is really interesting because .eth is one namespace, you know, um, within ENS. In the DNS system, there are thousands. And so it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're a Bitcoiner or you're into Cardano or whatever it is. Like you could get a .cash domain or a .name domain and ultimately they can all be ENS names. 
So that's really exciting, removing that cost. And then I think L2s and kind of the scaling solution with records and subdomain issuing and things like that is also like another big kind of um, opportunity that we're really now digging into. Lots of things going on yeah. on your end. Um, very much looking forward to all of that. Um, it's been a pleasure, Alicia Fabrice. Thank you so much for you know sharing all of this very valuable information. And I hope uh, that we you know we can have you both on the show sometime soon to you know see see everything that that ENS and Ledger uh, could you know could have done together in the future. So um, looking forward to that. Amazing. Thanks, Ma. That's it. It's just awesome to see how Ledger Live is evolving and integrating with new technologies like ENS. It's not just making the experience better, but also showing how ENS is becoming a foundation for decentralized identities. Really exciting to think about all the possibilities this could open up. On the Ledger, we'll be back soon with some of your favorite content. In the meantime, stay safe. Till next time, au revoir. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.